Monica and my first test, real test in marriage, came when I started seminary at Regent College. We were totally broke. We were sleeping on my cousin's couch, which is great as newlyweds. And Monica needed to get a job to support me in grad school for the next several years. And so being the A-type personality that I am, I went out that morning and found about 50 job postings available on the University of British Columbia campus in Vancouver. And I presented them to her and, you know, dutifully she looked them over and I think made a few phone calls, but then came back to me with the words, I really don't feel that these represent what God's calling me to. I think we need to wait on the Lord a little bit. I didn't know how to respond. Later that day, it got even worse when we went to the college itself. We're walking through the college, and Monica pointed at the front office area at the seminary and said, I really feel, as crazy as it sounds, I feel called to work there. And I said, oh, great. There's a job posting. And she said, no. She said, I think we just need to wait on the Lord. I said, okay. Now, how does this story of great anxiety for me come to a completion? Well, you'll have to wait until the end of the sermon to find out. But the point is, I need Advent. I need to enter into this season of waiting. Because God uses seasons of waiting to form his people, to form us in faith. As uncomfortable and as unsettled as those seasons of waiting can be, they are for the purpose of forming us more and more to be the people God is calling us to be. As John Ortberg writes, he said, biblically, waiting is not just something we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be, men and women of faith. We see this in Moses' story right here in the text. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, we're told Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now, Midian and Moses' time in Midian, we find out, has been in fact a 40-year season in Moses' life. You go back one chapter to chapter 2, where Moses kills the Egyptian. You know, in, in, in haste and anger and fury over what's happened to God's people, Moses not really waiting on the Lord, just taking matters into his own hands. He has to flee to Midian 40 years. And during that 40 years, Moses is being formed and shaped by God. But also, this is not the last time that Moses will walk through this formation and shaping. There is another 40 years coming. As they go into the Exodus and as they go into the wilderness, Israel will find itself 40 years waiting to come into the promise of that land. And though it is true that Israel brought it upon themselves in their own sinful rebellion, God uses this 40 years to form them and shape them into the people he wants them to be. Listen to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the end. This is Moses' final speech. This is 40 years after the Exodus begun. And what does he say about these 40 years? 
Moses says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know and your fathers did not know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your feet did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God has disciplined you. God used this 40-year waiting period to shape and form Israel to be the people he was calling them to be. And so it is with us. The question is not, will I go through periods of waiting? The question really is, how will I go through them? Will I go through them as I often fall into these seasons of waiting with fear and, and a frantic perspective where I get busy and active and I try to take things into my own hands? I try to manipulate an outcome, which is really about avoiding the waiting. Right? Think about Israel. You know, just as they're beginning this 40-year you know, sojourn in the desert, what happens? They're at the Mount Sinai. And we see an example of them manufacturing an outcome, manipulating an outcome, not being willing to wait. They can't wait for Moses to come down from the mountain. So what do they do? They take matters into their own hands and they build a golden calf. This is an example of what happens to us again and again when we try to circumvent waiting and take matters into our own hands. God is giving us these seasons to form us and shape us. They are not seasons to be avoided. It's a season of growth. So as we look at this Exodus 3 passage, as we enter into Advent, this season of waiting, this Exodus 3 passage shows us three things about what God does for his people as we wait. First, we see that seasons of waiting grow our faith that God knows our circumstances. The first thing we see is that God knows what's going on to you and I in that season of waiting. He sees, he hears, he's aware of those circumstances. But not only does God know the circumstances of what's going on in that season, our seasons of waiting grow faith that God knows our condition, the condition of our hearts. As we'll find, it's not just that there's external forces that are against us, there's actually internal forces against us, sin and brokenness right here. And God is aware and knows the conditions of our hearts. But these seasons of waiting, Exodus 3 shows us, are not just to grow our faith that God knows our circumstances and knows the conditions of our hearts, but that he knows the covenant which he has promised. That he knows what he has sworn he will do for his people. And we need to be reminded of this again and again. And a season of waiting, is there is no better way than to grow in trust of God's covenant. See, first, seasons of waiting grow our faith that God knows our circumstances, that God sees. Look, listen to verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. I mean, this is the word of comfort that comes to a person going through loss 
going through a season of trial and brokenness, a season of injustice and sorrow, to know that God is fully aware. He knows what is going on in your circumstances. See, the problem is so often we want to circumvent and bypass these difficult seasons of being unsettled. We want to get around them, right? And so instead of dealing with the tragedy in our lives or the tragedy we see in the world, we opt for a sentimentalized approach to difficulty, right? We see this in Advent and Christmas most clearly, right? Sentimentalism is forcing a feeling of joy, not real joy, but just a sentimentalized feeling. You know, let's just force out that joyful feeling and it will help us get through the difficulty we're going through, right? And there's incredible pressures around us. You go shopping right now, the number one hit Christmas song you're going to hear in the mall is this blatant. You will get a sentimental feeling when you hear voices singing, let's be jolly, deck the halls with boughs of holly. It's that blatant. A sentimental feeling, a forced feeling. I know this because I live in Deerfield. <laughs> People asked us when we moved here, moved into Deerfield, were you prepared for what Christmas Palooza was going to be like? And the truth is, I didn't. But here's the thing that, 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 that concerns me most is not that it takes me 20 minutes to get from Christchurch and drive two blocks, but it's a concern that clearly we just skip Advent altogether. We go from Thanksgiving to Christmas. There's no season of waiting. There's no sense of anticipation and waiting and acknowledging the brokenness and the pain and the reality of the world we live in. No, we jump straight to sentimental values. Let's force that feeling. Let's just put on a happy face, even though there's great pain and sorrow in our lives and around us. I like how Flannery O'Connor speaks of sentimentalism this way, saying, we lost our innocence in the fall and our return to it is through the redemption which was brought about by Christ's death and by our slow participation in it. Sentimentality is a skipping of this process in its concrete reality at an early arrival at a mock state of innocence which strongly suggests its opposite. Sentimentalism is an attempt to bypass and avoid the pain of our circumstances. But what we truly need when we are going through grief and sorrow and injustice and pain is to know that there is a God who sees us in those circumstances, who knows what we're going through. As Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, when she flees from Sarai, fearful and sensing that abandonment and that shame, and God meets her in the wilderness. And because of that moment of God meeting her in her pain, she gives God a name. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees me. These seasons of waiting grow faith in us that God knows our circumstances. But not only that he knows our circumstances, these seasons of waiting grow faith that God knows our condition. 
See, when Moses encounters God here in the burning bush, and though it says it's an angel of the Lord, every commentator says angel, angelos in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the messenger, this, this is God himself. It's a theophany. God is meeting Moses in this burning bush. And what happens? Verse 5, God says to Moses, do not come near. Take off your sandals for you're standing on a holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And what do we hear from Moses? Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at the Lord. See, Moses is experiencing what Peter experienced in that fishing boat with Jesus when he first met him. When he's with Jesus and Jesus says, you know, if you throw the net on the other side of the boat, you'll catch fish. And Peter says, whatever. And then he does it in this enormous haul of fish. And in that moment, Peter understands who he's with. And what does he say? He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. In the presence of a holy God, Moses is immediately aware of his unholiness, of his brokenness. He realizes that God doesn't just know his circumstances, but God knows the condition of his very heart. As Psalm 139 says, Oh God, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way within me. When we are waiting, in seasons of waiting, we can begin to worry that it is something deeply wrong in us that has brought us to that season of waiting. There's something shameful and broken. There's something that is fundamentally wrong that has caused this. And in fact, maybe this situation is something I'm never going to get out of. Because what, what could God possibly do with someone as broken as me? If God could really look in and see how much is broken within me, perhaps I, I'm forever going to be stuck in this place. We're confronted with our brokenness, our condition the condition of our hearts. We, we took our girls to see Dear Evan Hansen a couple nights ago. This is the new musical coming through Dallas Summer Musicals at the uh, Music Hall at Fair Park. This is what won the Tony Award for Best Musical in 2018. And what's, what's incredible is for those of you who love, you know, Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera, you know, this Dear Evan Hansen is nothing like that. Like, there's a long distance that has been traveled between what it sounds like lyrically. You know, for those of you who like cats, I'll pray for you. But, um, <laughs> but Dear Evan Hansen is just such a different, gritty, hard-hitting musical because it's dealing with issues of teenage depression, teenage suicide, brokenness, shame, a sense of worth, loneliness. As I looked around that music hall, it was full of teenagers. I've never seen DSM so full of teenagers because these are precisely the issues that they are struggling with. And if we're honest, all of us are struggling with lyrics that sound like this. No, I'd rather pretend I'm something better than these broken parts. Pretend I'm something other than this mess that I am because then I don't have to look at it and no one gets to look at it. No, no one can really see because what if everyone saw? What if everyone knew? 
Would they like what they saw? Or would they hate it too? And the whole room is bawling their eyes out. Because everyone in that room knows this struggle. The struggle with this condition of our heart that we know we're broken. And this is why in this Exodus story, God comes to make a way so that the unholiness of God's people, the unholiness of Moses can be transformed in such a way that an unholy people can dwell with a holy God. And you see it so clearly in that burning bush. See, the whole fact that the bush is not consumed is the point. It's not surprising in verses two and three that God appears to Moses in fire. God appears in fire all the time. He appears in fire on Sinai. He appears as a pillar of fire before Israel. He appears as fire the day of Pentecost coming down on the heads of the disciples, right? The fact that God shows up in fire is not a surprise. Here's what's amazing. Verse two, Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. The the, the The amazing thing in this text is not the fire, but the fact that the bush doesn't get destroyed by that fire. And you're going to say, well, what does that mean? And it means precisely this, as Karl Barth, probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, says of this text, what this means is that God, who we understand from Deuteronomy chapter 4, to be a consuming fire, a fire that will come down and consume all that is unholy, all that is not right, will consume sin and unholiness, will consume enemies, that this God who is a consuming fire comes down upon this bush which represents nothing other than Israel. God comes in fire upon his people, his sinful and broken people, his sinful broken people, comes in a consuming fire that will, yes, consume their sin and will consume their enemies, but will not consume them. That God will come as a consuming fire to burn away all that is unrighteous, all that is broken, all that is sinful within us. will burn away and consume our enemies, that list of the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. But he will not consume us in the process. In fact, if you can hear it, The truth of scripture is that as God comes to consume our sin, but not allow us to be consumed by it, it's precisely because he will allow his son to be consumed in the process of dealing with our sin instead of us. The only one who will be destroyed by this consuming, purifying moment will be Jesus. He will be consumed. We will survive. That's why we wear purple in this season of waiting. In Advent, it's the color we see at Lent. It's a color that represents penitence, confession, acknowledging our sin. Before we come to Christmas, we take time to repent, to acknowledge our brokenness. Advent becomes a mini Lent, whereas the collect we pray each week says, Lord, help us cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Come and consume all that is wicked and broken within me, but do not consume me in the process. 
These seasons of waiting are about growing faith that God knows our circumstances. He knows what we're going through, but also that he knows the condition of the hearts within us. He knows us. But finally, those seasons of waiting, these seasons of waiting, grow our faith that God knows his covenant. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't forgotten the promise that he's given us. See, in verse 8, we read that his response to what God has seen and knows and hears, he says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God enters into our lives, enters into our world to rescue us. But even though God has come, right, here he comes in the life of Israel, and still they're going to have to go through 40 years of transformation. So it is in the life of Jesus that Jesus comes to us, Emmanuel, God with us. But now, though he's won the victory for us on the cross and the empty tomb, we still have this season of waiting. Because that's what the word Advent means. It means coming. It comes from that Latin, Adventus, or Adventin, Adventir, this coming moment. We, we live really between the two Advents of Jesus. The first Advent, the first coming, is the Nativity, Christmas. All the victory is won. But the second Advent that we wait for is what we said in the Creed a moment ago that he will come again. We live between these two Advents. Advent is a season of waiting between the first Advent and the second Advent. And that waiting is unsettling. Because we see that our circumstances are not yet perfected. Though Jesus has won the victory, there is still imperfection within my circumstances. And though Jesus has won the victory in that first advent, there is still imperfection in my condition of my heart. And we sit in this unsettled season between advents. As Karl Barth goes on to say, really for the Christian, your whole life until Jesus comes really is advent. You're always waiting. Until we see him appear, we will be in advent, waiting and what we're waiting for is for that final fulfillment of what Jesus has won for us in his first coming. That in his second coming, finally we will have the realization of the perfected life, the perfected universe. That as Romans chapter 8 says of this waiting and this longing, that verse 22 for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. We long for it. We long for the fulfillment of that final word of Scripture, those words that began our liturgy today. Jesus, at the very end, Revelation 22, verse 20, how does the whole story end? With Jesus saying to his people, surely I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. And we respond, amen, come Lord Jesus. See, God uses this season to grow our faith that he has not forgotten his promise to come again. I love how in Exodus 3, if you just go back two verses 
to the previous chapter, we get a little window into the mind of God just before the Exodus. And and we read this in chapter 2, verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That God remembered the promise that he had made to them. That God has not forgotten. Though we live within these advents, though we live in this unsettled reality of brokenness and darkness within us and around us still, God has not forgotten his covenant. God has not forgotten his promise to come again. And because we are so want to forget, because we are so want to doubt whether he will remember his covenant, he gives us the opportunity to renew the covenant every time we gather. We rehearse it every week at this table. We rehearse the promise of his coming, his death and his resurrection and his coming again as a promise. As he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This meal for us every week becomes a foretaste of that meal we wait for, that meal we will share with him in the wedding supper of the lamb, in the new heavens and the new earth. The first thing we do together, scripture tells us, is we're gonna eat. We're gonna gather as family with Jesus and eat together. And every week we eat as a sure reminder, God has not forgotten his covenant, not forgot his promise to return. Seasons of waiting are meant to grow us in faith. To grow our faith that God sees and knows our circumstances. He knows what you're going through today. These seasons of waiting grow our faith. That God knows our conditions. He knows what is broken in you and me right now. And he is consuming it by his son's blood without consuming us. And seasons of waiting grow faith that God has not forgotten his covenant. Surely he is coming soon. That first major test that Monica and I had in our marriage around her finding the job, Monica faithfully saying, I just really feel like we need to wait on the Lord and my anxiety And then, you know, saying, I I really think it's this particular job that wasn't even a job. And my anxiety went further. We need to wait on the Lord, she says. Well, it wasn't a full week before a job posting came out for that front desk job at Regent College. And Monica applied for it. And she was hired. And she thrived in it. And people thrived around her. And it meant that I got a free class every year. And it meant that she got to take free classes sometimes with me. And it meant that she and I got to eat lunch together every day that I was in grad school. But you know what's the greatest miracle of all of this? The greatest miracle is how that very small season of waiting, but that very hard season of waiting for me, formed my fearful and frantic heart into a place of faith and trust in the Lord. I can't tell you the number of times in the last 20 years when we've gone through a season of waiting, a season of testing, a season of trial, 
that one of us is not able to turn to the other and say, remember the job at Regent College. I need Advent. And so do you. We need to have seasons of waiting because here in this season is where God will form our faith. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.